This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric here to let you know that my podcast, Next Question with me, Katie Couric, is back for its second season. I'll be diving into some big issues like this country's devastating maternal mortality rate, the rise of astrology, and a little thing called the presidential election. Listen to Next Question. It comes out every Thursday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm editor Candace Gibson, joined today by the ever-valiant and ever-noble and true Sir Josh Clark. Hey, Candace. Thanks. Hi there. Thank you for knighting me just now. You're very welcome. That's like the third time this month. I know. I'm really trying to get on Josh's good side. He's yeah. just been so so darn chivalrous and nice. I just had to do something, you know, quid pro quo. The uh, the cape over the puddle is what you're referring to. And you held a door for me about two weeks ago. That's true. Too. I guess I have been kind of chivalrous. Good. Thank Indeed. You. And yeah. you know, we could use a little bit more of that in our daily lives. I'm not saying we all have to go around whipping out swords from stones like my favorite legend of all time. King Arthur, but there are certain principles and values from the Arthurian legend that I like to apply to my daily life. Well, they're actually kind of universal. They are. They're what are these qualities again? We have honor and valor, valor and courage. Um, and oh, uh, maybe not stealing the king's wife. That's a good that's one. That's a nice one too. You know what's what's odd is that um, a lot of these these um, parts of chivalry. Uh, or a lot of the values that fall under the umbrella of chivalry also um, kind of jive with um, like Christian values as well. They do. You're which absolutely is kinda, which right. Which is kind of significant because I remember um, part of the Arthurian legend is that um, when England needs him most, uh, Arthur will rise from the dead to come back to save it, which sounds an awful lot like another person. Um, who is that? I know who you're hinting at. Who? Jesus. Oh, <laughs> you did know. Wow. I, I did. And, you know, it's there's a very good reason that it sounds a lot like Christian stories. And that's because when the legend of Arthur was first put on paper, mm-hmm. it was back with Geoffrey of Monmouth. He started penning it down back in the oh, 12th century. Was that? I think. Yeah, 12th century in the 1100. And then after Geoffrey of Monmouth, Chris, uh, Christian of Troyes or Chrétien de Troyes, he picked it up and penned his own version. Mm-hmm. And after Chrétien de Troyes, there was the Vulgate cycle. And this was a version of the legends of Arthur that married the story with very Christian concepts. Mm-hmm. And then after that version was written, Sir Thomas Mallory adopted that and created his very famous 
very well reputed and known, Le Mort d'Arthur, or The Death of Arthur. And that was the version that everyone was working from. So if there's certain principles of Christianity that seem to jive with the Arthurian legend, that's why. Well, yeah, I think it was kind of the two were married together because about the time uh, that it was being put to paper, uh, Christianity was being introduced to Western Europe. You know, prior to this time, peasants had really no reason to toil. And then all of a sudden, they have Christianity, which says, uh, you know, the harder you work on earth or the, the worse your lot in, on earth, the better it is in heaven. All of a sudden, they toil a little harder and the feudal, you know, kings were saying, keep at it, you know, thanks mm-hmm. a lot. So it's, it makes a lot of sense that, uh, that this national hero would be married with those same kind of Christian values as well. And just to give you a little background on this national hero, I know you probably have some ideas of who Arthur was, whether you see him as Sean Connery or the very skinny, scrawny, prepubescent cartoon from Disney Sword and Stone. Or Clive Owen. Or Clive, my preferred version, really. Same here. Um, but Arthur, you know, it's really hard to tell the story of Arthur because there's so many disparate versions. But pretty much, um, he was a young lad growing up in England at a time when it had recently been invaded and their former leader had been dethroned and he saw a sword and a stone. He pulled it out and by virtue of that, he became king because that was Excalibur. He was the new Gordon Brown. Indeed, indeed. Other versions of the story have the Lady of the Lake handing him the sword and telling him that he was to rule the country. So from there, he took his trusty sword, Excalibur, and built the mighty fortress Camelot, a stronghold for his... his, uh, kingdom. And once inside, he started devising a very innovative and egalitarian concept called the round table. And this really was pretty radical because before there had always been positions of authority within the knighthood. And, you know, someone was always top nine. Somebody was, you know, sort of bottom rung. But with Arthur, everyone was equal. It was a round table. Round. That was a good way to lead. It was. Yeah. And because he was such a good leader... Everybody kind of wants a piece of him, you know, the same way that the same way that the U.S. wants to claim posh. And yet she still has British roots. Everyone wants to say she's our girl. Everyone said that about Arthur, the British, the Welsh. Well, actually, the British kind of um, one could make a case. The British pilfered uh, Arthur um, and propped him up as a uh, as a, um, a poster boy for their. Their national values, you know, things that, uh, that he, he was a famous figure that, um, conquered evil and united, you know, the, this land, wherever the land actually was during, you know, his time, um, and led people out of this darkness and out of danger and fear. Um, and he wasn't necessarily English. The Welsh, on the other hand, seemed to be perfectly content with, Arthur remaining English. There's a guy out there who's found some evidence that if Arthur did live, he was a Welshman, and the Welsh aren't really doing a whole lot to, you know, pick up that gauntlet and run with it. You know, it's funny, this evidence of Arthur's existence, it's pretty touchy. Mm-hmm. Because if this is a matter of national pride and people do want a piece of Arthur, what they need is proof. And they're turning to these supposed historical relics, and they're saying, here it is. Here's proof that Arthur existed. And you were asking me about one of these earlier. The round table you were talking about supposedly is hanging in a castle. Well, there is a round table hanging in a castle in England, and it was supposedly Arthur. So, I mean, wouldn't that prove that, you know, he was an actual person? 
Wouldn't that take him out of the realm of fiction and put him into the realm of fact? Well, it would, except for one tiny hitch. What? It's not authentic. Oh. So it's fiction. Yeah. I'm sorry to disappoint <laughs> would definitely make you. It fiction. That would make it fiction. And a lot of these historical relics and dates come from Thomas Mallory, because again, he was the one who put this into context and actually named landmarks in England and, you know, pretty much said Arthur was here. And that wasn't the case. And in fact, the place that he claimed was Arthur's uh, birthplace, Tentacle Castle, that wasn't built until the 1100s, and that was centuries after Arthur was supposed to have lived. And a lot of people think now that the reason he named that place is because it was affiliated with his patron who commissioned his work of literature. Toting. There you go. And as for the round table in question, well, here's where your bubble's really going to be burst. <laughs> well, um, some scholars carved and dated it, and it only dated back to 1340. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So now they're starting to believe that it was commissioned by Henry VIII because people were really fascinated by the Arthurian legend and medieval culture. And he wanted a replica. Yeah, it's understandable. I could not feel more disillusioned right now, but um, at least I'm still a knight. Well, that is true. That is true. Well, um, I want to help scrape you up. I have a nice story for you. It's called How King Arthur Worked, and you can read all about it on HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you like boats? Do you like big boats? Do you like poor people and the rich people they serve on big boats? Are you always like, what goes on below deck? Hi, this is Anna Hosnier. And Nick Turner. The hosts of Deckheads. And we want to take you on a fun and goofy adventure. In this binge-style podcast, we will watch and recap every episode of Bravo's Below Deck and all of its spinoffs. And we're going to release an episode a day so you can watch along with us and listen to our silly daily recaps. Listen to Deckheads when it drops on February 20th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.